Today's message, we're going to talk about marriage. And anytime you talk about marriage, there will be some in the crowd who will self-select and they will immediately assume, oh, well, I'm not married. This doesn't apply to me. And, and I think that's a miss. I think there's always something you can take away from every conversation. And for some of you, you're, you're single, but chances are you're eventually going to get married. Uh, you ought to learn some of this stuff now. Uh, it would be a huge blessing and maybe give you a head start in one of the most important relationships you'll ever have. Uh, in addition to that, some of you may find yourself divorced. And so that comes with uh, pain and all kinds of feelings. And quite honestly, uh, as churches and as pastors, uh, we haven't always done a really good job of handling the divorce conversation. And if uh, you've been divorced, and that's part of your story, um, I just wanna, as a pastor, publicly uh, apologize for the times in which we've got this conversation wrong. And maybe it's isolated you or come with a unintentional but shame and embarrassment. And just know that we, we love you and we're for you and we're so thankful that you're a part of our church family. And uh, we, we believe in you, and uh, we, we, our hearts break for the different things that you've gone through. Uh, but I, I do believe that maybe, just maybe, even a message on marriage could still be encouraging to you and, and maybe even helpful as you move forward relationally, amen? And I, I love marriage. The thing that annoys me about the marriage conversation is we always give press to the bad examples, we always co-sign to culture's negative stereotypes. I think the ball and chain stereotype gets way too much press. I think marriage is the best gig on the planet. I, I just love it. Like, where else can you find someone to follow you around every day of your life, giving you commentary for everything you do? Like, this is, <laughs> this is such a gift. But no, it is amazing. You, you get to go on this adventure and... You know, I hear people say things, well, there's a reason why fairy tales always end with the wedding, because after the wedding ring comes suffering. And I'm like, that's terrible. <laughs> this is not even true at all. For one, fairy tales are garbage, and marriage is not a fairy tale. But my goodness, it's exhilarating, and it's an adventure, and you get to enjoy it and figure it out and navigate it together with your closest friend. And that is rewarding and enriching and, I think, a beautiful thing. I recently heard... Chris Rock, who's a comedian, which you may not want to YouTube him because you'll be offended and then you'll take it out on me. Uh, but he said, you have two options. You can either be single and lonely or you can be married and bored. And I thought to myself, no, those are not your only two options. And sometimes we just, oh yeah, well that makes sense. No, it actually doesn't make sense. It's like when people say, I would rather wear out than rust out. I'm like, those are not the only two options, right? And so sometimes we gotta be a little bit more nimble in our thinking to assess the things being projected onto us and just say, I'm just not gonna co-sign to how the world wants to define this beautiful relationship. And I am going to see to it that God does what he wants to do in and through our relationship and marriage is amazing. And you should know God cares a great deal about marriage. In fact, a lot of people, they overlook this detail, but all of scripture, scripture is a library of 66 books, and which is the first book? Genesis, yeah. And in the book of Genesis comes the creation account. And what do you find in chapter one? A wedding, 
All of scripture begins with a wedding and God is the ultimate wedding planner. He goes to great lengths in establishing this remarkable, beautiful, breathtaking creation. And when all is in place and all is ready, he then brings together man and woman. It's, it's beautiful. It's like God saying, I gotta get everything ready for this ceremony where I am going to unite husband and wife. What's amazing is if you go through scripture, I would encourage you always pay attention to patterns. You know, it's just things that are curious to me. And what you find is as God is bringing about his creation, uh, a lot of what he's doing is he's separating things. He's separating, he's separating, he's separating. So he separates sky from land and he separates day from night and he separates heaven from earth and he separates the water from land and he separates the creatures of the sea from the creatures of the land, from the creatures of the sky. If you pay attention, he separates, he separates, he separates. And then he comes to man. And for the first time in his creation, he brings two things together and he unites man and woman And he sits back and what does he say? It was good. I just love a good wedding. I love when a couple does it right. I love when they commit to honoring God and both individuals pursue a path that is God honoring and God brings them together in such a precious way that those weddings are just different. And not only do you sit back thinking, oh, this is awesome. You can just sense God's affirmation. Like this is good. And What's interesting to me about scripture and how this lays out, which, which shout out to um, Joe Kapinski. Anyone know Joe Kapinski? Yeah. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, last night I preached on a screen and I, I, I just felt kind of boxed in. There are some things in my heart in the moment that I wanted to speak to, but the PowerPoint said my next slide was this and I was like, oh, I just, I think I just wanna go up there with a whiteboard in the Bible so I have a little bit more freedom. And so I realized literally 15 minutes before I walked out here, my Bible that I preached from is ESV and I had accidentally sent the team uh, the NIV version. And so we ran out into the lobby and we found this Bible uh, in the lost and found. And so Joe Kapinski, (laughs) thank you so much uh, for letting me use your Bible. Now here's what I, I love about this. I, I opened up this Bible and sorry, I was snooping, Joe. Uh, <laughs> but I love when people take the time to fill out the dedication of the Bible. And just so happens on a week where I'm speaking about marriage, uh, this Bible was given to Joe by his wife and there's a dedication in the page. But what amazed me about this, and this was given to him just Christmas of 2022 is what it says. I open up... <laughs> Yeah, bro, I got some information on you. (laughs) And I open up this Bible, and I mean, there's already a lot of mileage on this Bible. I mean, the, the notes that fell out of this Bible, the highlighted notes all throughout this Bible, and, uh, I just found myself, like, really encouraged as a pastor, like, man, there are some awesome people in our church. And so, Joe, thank you for letting me use your Bible today. And uh, look at this. And if you go to Genesis chapter, chapter two, God gives his first critique of his creation. 
So he's, he's creating, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and, and he's affirming his creation. And then in chapter two, verse 18, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be, say this word with me, alone. I will make a helper suitable or fit for him. It is not good for man to be alone. Now that word alone has a dual meaning. What God is saying is one, it is not good for man to be one of a kind. In other words, Adam can't be the only human on this planet. Adam can't be one of a kind. He cannot be alone. In addition to that, you can say that it is not good for men to be alone. That what God is getting at is one, the need for relationship and community as well as the need for the progression of humanity. And why is God saying it's, it's not good? Because if you go back in scripture, when God brings Adam and Eve together in Genesis chapter one, look how it says it in verse 27 of chapter one. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Watch this. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So why is God critiquing man? He, he looks at man and says, hey, the goal, the, the mission statement of humanity, the purpose here is to be fruitful and to multiply. Okay, so let's, let's look at Adam. He's not going to be able to accomplish this. It's not good for him to be alone. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter four, how would it say it would say two are better than one for there's a greater return on their work. Two are better than one because if one falls down, the other can help them up. Two are better than one because if one is cold, the other can keep them warm. Two are better than one. And God looks at Adam and says, oh, two would be better than one because the goal here is to be fruitful and there would be a greater return for your efforts if you had someone to partner with you. And then in addition to that, He's, what's the other goal? To be fruitful and to multiply. And God knew that if I just create a world full of men, that would be a barren world. And if I created a world full of only women, that would be a barren world. Neither one would lead to life. And so it is the partnership of men and women that produces what God is after. And you should know that this is what God desires. And here's the thing. When it comes to marriage, there are a lot of opinions, growing opinions, diverse and even contradicting opinions on marriage. And I'm guessing in this room at all of our campuses, there are a lot of bias, preferences, opinions, and approaches to marriage. And you can go online and jump on Google or YouTube and pretty much every single one of us can find someone out there to affirm how we see fit and what we desire. Someone to align with our preferences and align with our desires, but here's the deal. Today, you didn't show up to Google and you didn't show up to YouTube. You showed up to church which has anchored itself to the goodness of Jesus Christ and the written word of God that inspires and instructs our lives. And my role 
uh, every week is to just open the pages of scripture and to say, hey, church, let's, let's stare at this. And, and here's one thing that you have to understand. Scripture is going to create a tension. It's gonna create a tension. And it's in the tension that you grow. And so when you bump into a tension, you have to remind yourself, if it's from God, it's for good. Say that with me at all of our campuses. Say, if it's from God, it's for good. Come on, one more time. If it's from God, it's for good. And so sometimes it's learning to be like, all right, this is a tension. I'm in an argument with God. But what do we say around here? If you ever get into an argument with God and you win, you lose. And what we are gonna look at today, I'm just gonna tell you right out the gate, some of you, you're gonna think, oh, no way, I don't like it. Some of you are gonna think, well, that's so old school and outdated, that's archaic. And quite honestly, I kind of received that as an affirmation. I find that the older I get, I find myself saying things like, you know, they just don't make them like they used to. <laughs> they don't make cars the way they used to. They don't make music the way they used to. And we don't make families the way we once did. We certainly don't make marriages the way we once did. You look at the divorce rates from the 1960s to our current day, we have changed the way in which we are developing the household. And I think the whole outdated conversation is hilarious to me because in scripture, what you find, and you should take note of this, there is, well, I think scripture is a marriage resource unlike any other resource available in the world. For one, know this, this is a fact, there is not an older piece of literature in human history that speaks to marriage older than scripture. So it's the longest lasting resource on marriage in the entire world. You should know that. In addition to that, marriage uh, is not only contained all throughout scripture, uh, but what you find is marriage, according to scripture, has been practiced and applied on every continent around the world in every context and proven to be successful and effective. So think about this. This is the longest lasting resource, and you could argue that it is the most applied marriage resource throughout human history around the globe. In addition to that, Scripture, and we just read it, not only speaks of marriage, it speaks of the origin of marriage. It peels it all the way back. Have you ever wondered, like, hey, how did we get here? Where did this idea come from? individuals committing to spending the rest of their life with someone else. How do we begin doing this? And when you go to this resource, what you find is it's not only the oldest resource and the most applied resource. This resource also speaks to the origin of marriage, which whose idea was it? God's marriage, folks. Marriage is God's idea. And we gotta be careful trying to hijack something that is rightfully his. Marriage is God's idea. And I would say it this way. One, God designed it. And if God designed it, God defined it. And I just think it's learning to lean into like, okay, if it's from God, it's for good. What is he after? And I'm gonna read you something in Joe's Bible today. 
that uh, it's gonna come with some tension. And if you're sitting next to your spouse, no one gets to elbow anybody today. No one gets to say, I told you so today. Everybody mind your own business, okay? <laughs> Ephesians chapter one, uh, five, verse 21, watch this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul's gonna start speaking about marriage and he comes right out the gate and he introduces this idea of submission, which flies in the face of how our culture is wiring itself. We are independent, narcissistic, self-centered, and self-affirming. And so an idea of submission really flies in the face of how culture says we should approach life. And I would just say, uh, whoever marries the spirit of the age eventually becomes a widow. There's always gonna be vogue ideas that stand in contradiction to God's word, but just know like those come and go, but this remains, amen? And if you're gonna live in a world that's always changing, you might as well anchor yourself to the never changing word of God. And he says, submit to one another. Why? This is huge. Out of reverence for Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, this is gonna be comical for you because you get to peer into our group therapy. Because really, Paul is instructing, this is how Christians ought to approach marriage. And I think sometimes where we go wrong is when we expect non-Christians to act like Christians and then we don't hold Christians accountable for acting like Christians and then we're confused when the world calls us hypocrites. This is for us Christians to align to God's word. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Meaning, the more you respect Christ, the more you'll respect your spouse. The more you respect Christ, the more you'll respect your spouse. And this is an interesting dynamic because he says, hey, submit to one another. In other words, marriage is a submission competition. Another way of saying it is marriage is a race to the back of the line. It's saying, no, no, you first. No, you first. Marriage is placing someone you care deeply about before yourself. It's a submission competition. It is a race to the back of the line. So he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, this is mutual submission. And then he goes into what this looks like for the wife and what this looks like for the husband. And everyone just take a deep breath. <laughs> Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Whew. Everyone just take a deep breath, right? And here's the thing, what's interesting to me is I came up in a church where I would hear this passage preached, but what I eventually found to be really interesting is the preachers I grew up under always stopped preaching after verse 24. <laughs> and where they stopped reading, Paul kept speaking. And this kind of propped us men up 
to take on a chauvinism that isn't accurate with the word of God. But what he goes on to say to us husbands is far more uncomfortable than what he just said to the wives. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing, uh, by the washing with her water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And here's what's so interesting to me is I've been a pastor now coming up on 18 years, and Throughout my entire ministry career, I have preached Ephesians 5. And what is interesting is when I first became a pastor, this was an affirmation. And here we are 17, 18 years later, and this passage has gone from being an affirmation to an agitation. And it is so interesting in my ministry career, which is pretty short, how much our world has shifted in response to God's word. And what you find here is God placing before marriage some high expectations, some really high standards, the type of stuff that's intimidating, the type of stuff that makes us all uncomfortable, but the thing that deep down inside, even if we don't want to admit it, we know if I were in a relationship with another person and the two of us were committed to those type of standards, yeah, that would probably be a good message, a good marriage. And... What is the thing that Paul is weaving through this conversation of marriage? The gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that Jesus came to save humanity, to lay himself down for the church, which Jesus refers to the church as his bride. Right? So just be mindful next time you spit in the bride's face because at some point we all meet the groom. That's something we should think about. And... What you find is throughout this conversation of marriage is this consistent emphasis on the gospel. Jesus came, he loved unconditionally, he served faithfully, and he resurrected and he paid the ultimate price for all of us. And what Paul is getting at is the best marriages, I think, or maybe the secret to a good marriage is a marriage that is centered on the gospel. The secret to a good marriage is a marriage that is centered on the gospel. In other words, what he's saying is, in this, we're called to mutual submission, and for the wife, that looks like radical service, right? And how do you reflect that? By looking like Christ. So for the wife, what we find in this passage is one, the gospel gives us a model 
Okay, this is going to be teaching, but it gives us a model. And it says, okay, so the wife's role is to reflect Christ in relationship to God the Father, right? Who came to serve God the Father's will and desires. And the husband's role is to reflect Christ in relationship to the church in which he laid his life down for the church. It it gives us a model. And it says, hey, for the wife, it's radical service. And for the husband, it's radical sacrifice. And these are big claims and expectations for both sides of it. And what we're finding is alternative approaches to marriage are being offered. And I really think what you're finding is really two, alternative, uh, two approaches. And the two approaches would be, one, you can either approach marriage as a consumer, which is kind of what is becoming the trend, or you can approach marriage as a covenant, a consumer or a covenant. And you can always tell who's getting married to get something out of it. Like, and we might as well just change our vows at the altar. And we might as well just get up there today and say, in the presence of God, my family and friends, I promise to make this relationship all about me. And I promise to be self-centered and selfish and expect you to, like, and, and that's a consumer mindset. And I would say to the next generation, be very careful because we are starting to approach relationships in a very unhealthy way. But scripture doesn't call us to approach relationship as consumers. But as a covenant, I am making a vow to spend the rest of my life giving it all that I have to love you into your potential. And so it gives us a model. And again, if, if you're here and you're at a church and you're thinking like, well, what is God's desire for marriage? Um, God's desire would be for you to approach it as a covenant, not as a consumer. That would just be something that you would want to tuck away if you're going to follow Christ and infuse that into your marriage. And so it gives us, it gives us a model. And in this, it is much harder on the man than the woman. I, the, the claims, and I have always heard this, to be honest with you, poorly taught. I've heard this passage taught in a way that seems to endorse this idea that Uh, Us men just need to put our foot down and, you know, lead our homes with a, you know, a firm just control. And what you find in this passage is scripture is not telling us men to put our feet down. Scripture is telling us men to lay our lives down. It's a big difference. It's It's a conversation about leadership. And I think what happens here is in this conversation of leadership, there's a lot of tension. And I would think when it comes to this model, I think there are things that I see as very real issues and struggles in conversations that I have with women on this. And then there are things that I see as real issues and struggles with the men on this conversation. Now, this is limited in my experience in my conversation. So for some of you, you'll be like, well, that's not my struggle. I totally respect that. That's, chances are that's the case. So I don't want to paint with broad strokes, but in, as a pastor, these would be the common areas of tension. So when it comes to this issue of leadership and mutual submission and radical service and radical sacrifice, where's the issue for the women? Well, I find that it comes down to three areas. 
In my experience, it's either an issue of pride, an issue of picking, or an issue of potential. Now, let me explain that. I think for some, uh, this idea of being led by somebody else is, is really hard to accept. I think that's in all of our nature. And so this requires a great deal of humility and I think that sometimes shows itself in issues of pride. Not for everybody, but for some it's an issue of pride. For others, it's an issue of picking. So you, you bump into scripture, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to follow the lead of my husband. Well, I, I didn't pick someone who I can follow. And this is the, the gut-wrenching thing. And this is where I would tell some of you who are single contemplating marriage, my goodness, marriage is not something you rush into. You ought to kick the tires and you ought to ask as many wise, godly people in your life for accurate and honest feedback. Because if you're struggling while dating that person, you don't want to get married and magnify it. Because I believe there's no such thing as married people problems. There are single people problems that get magnified by marriage. You are already crazy. You just now have someone in your life to affirm it. <laughs> and, and so sometimes it's this. We, we're in such a hurry, we don't do our due diligence in the picking. And then we find ourselves unable to follow or unable to support someone's leadership because we didn't pick someone who fulfills that. The other issue is this area of potential, which again, this is where I think we've got it wrong a lot of times in the church, is this will be assumed, interpreted, and sometimes applied to say that in order for us to have a biblical marriage, women have to completely dwarf their development. And women have to completely shrink back in their dreams and their potential and their talent and all their gifting, also that they can shrink back to come under their husband. And this is where it's a challenge to us husbands. It's to lead in a way where your bride can live at her fullest potential and still follow your leadership. Does your wife have to pump the brakes in order to follow you? And so that's a challenge for us husbands. What would it look like for me to lead in a way that allows my bride to live at her fullest potential? And so sometimes the, the tension here is like, well, if I have to come under someone's leadership, I have to forfeit my potential. That, that's not what God is saying. So again, if you're, you're single, you should find someone who you can thrive under their leadership. That, that, that's what scripture's getting at. For men... I would say the issues would be pain, priorities, and patience. So for whatever reason, the conversation on the wife comes with more flair. And it always amazes me because I'm like, did, did anyone read what he said to the husbands? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? I mean, he laid his life down completely, publicly humiliated, executed in the nude in front of everybody on behalf of his bride, the local church. And so I think what happens is, is where we as husbands get exposed, and, and I'm in your camp, we get exposed for a low pain threshold. 
And God wired us men with certain faculties to endure a greater level of pain and pressure. And sometimes one of the healthiest, best things we can do in our marriage is to operate as that shield that reflects Christ because Christ on the cross served as a shield for humanity in which he took on the wrath of God on our behalf. He absorbed it. And so a lot of times we're faltering in our leadership because we have a low pain threshold. Life comes with pain. Life comes with inconvenience. Life comes with pressure. But God has wired us to absorb those things successfully. In addition to that, we get it wrong in terms of priorities. And again, this is something that as a community of faith, what would happen if we just leaned into these spaces? Like, hey, this stuff is a unique conversation. This guy's being really honest, but this is what the Bible's instructing us with. And here's the thing. When it comes to your bride, the only thing that trumps your relationship with your bride is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing. If you're gonna love your bride the way Christ loved the church, nothing comes before your bride, including your children. Because there's a progression that we're getting backwards. And here's the progression. We are, well, I would say it this way. The best parent you can be is the best spouse you can be, which is the best Christian you can be. So if you wanna thrive at being a spouse, be a great Christian. Be a great follower of Christ. You wanna thrive at being a good parent, be a great spouse. There's this progression to it. And I think sometimes we have our priorities out of order. And hear me on this. I'm gonna say this as gently as I possibly can. Nobody at home should feel like they're competing with anyone or anything at work. Nobody at home should feel like they're competing with anyone or anything at work. And lastly, patience. Think about this. He says, why, like, he, he laid down his life for the church also to present himself a church that is radiant without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. Well, let me ask you this. Does the church currently have some blemishes? Does the church currently have some stains? Absolutely. So he paid the ultimate price fully without the results taking place immediately. He infused love and then patiently waits for love to take its course. And I think sometimes we as men, we get exposed because we want one dose of love to make all the change necessary in the life of our spouse. And I, I just think this is where we're approaching marriage backwards. And again, you can find a different approach, but if you want the Bible's approach, I, I think this is radically different. And I think they don't make them like they used to. And what would happen if we rose to the occasion and said, man, marriage is an invitation to love this individual into their potential. I mean, anyone who's been married, you get this. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm so much better because of this person's love and belief in me. And we get the opportunity. So the gospel provides us a model. Two, the gospel provides us a mediator. And who's the mediator? Jesus. So you ever get in an argument or a tension in your relationship? Well, all of us have to sit down to coffee with Jesus. And so the, the wife has to sit down with Jesus and be like, okay, like, 
I have to reflect you. I can't argue with Jesus when he himself did the very thing I'm trying to accomplish. Okay, Jesus, how do I do it? And when we get into attention, the husband has to sit down to coffee with Jesus. Okay, Jesus, you laid your life down for the church. How can I do it? And what happens is, is Jesus becomes the mediator in a lot of marriage tension. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But here's the thing that I think is just fascinating. When you read this passage, if you were to ask obvious questions, which sometimes is actually a great approach to reading scripture, the obvious question would be, what is Paul talking about? And I think if you were to survey, most people would be like, well, clearly he's talking about marriage. But the question is, is he? So he goes on this long, exhaustive, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, this is what your role should look like. Men, this is what your role should look like. But look what he says in verse 32. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. It's as if he goes on this huge rant about marriage and he almost seems to deviate and take a right turn. He got, he, this is exhaustive explanation. And then he's like, but I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church, which raises the next question. Well, Paul, why say all that you just said about marriage? And here's the beauty in it all. Paul is saying, I am trying to do my very best to articulate to those who will listen the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm trying to illustrate it in a way that would make sense. And when I survey the world, the best illustration that I can find to illustrate the gospel is a marriage. And the way in which a husband and wife serve and sacrifice and submit and lovingly infuse hope, trust, and confidence into one another. He's saying the best example this side of heaven of the gospel is a marriage. So the gospel provides us a model. The gospel provides us a mediator. And lastly, the gospel provides a mission. And this is the one thing most people never take into consideration. And this might be the greatest thing you have available to you to discipling your kids. And that is your marriage might be the greatest example of the gospel someone will ever see. Your marriage might be the greatest example of the gospel someone might see. Your kids grow up realizing, oh, that's godly. That's beautiful. And my hope is when you start to see your marriage as a mission and as an illustration, Maybe it'll come with more purpose and more joy and more fulfillment and more motivation. And you'll find yourself seizing the moment to be like, we are putting on display for the world around us the gospel. And, and here's the deal. Guys, every marriage is full of mistakes because that, that's the pushback in a marriage conversation. Well, it's easy for you to say you have a perfect marriage. You can interview my bride to find out within 10 seconds there's no such thing. Come on, wave at me if you've discovered there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. Yeah, there's not a perfect marriage. It's ridiculous to even think that's attainable. Here's what I've discovered. Every marriage is full of mistakes, but the best marriages are full of grace. Amen. 
So you have to be anchored on the gospel. And you have to learn to carry some grace in your back pocket because your spouse is gonna need it. Every marriage is full of mistakes, but the best marriages are full of grace. And you have to learn, here, here would be my final point, to love the stranger. Because the number one thing I hear in counseling conversations is individuals say, well, he's not the person I married or she's not the person I married. And folks, neither is Kristen. I fell in love with her and asked her to marry me because I was drawn to the fact that she loved Jesus, had a great jump shot, had dark brown hair, dark eyes, and nice legs. That's why I wanted her to marry me. <laughs> then she becomes a corporate exec, wears a suit every day, and starts becoming really militant for a season. And every dinner felt like a board meeting, and that was a new version of my wife. And then she became a mom. And I had to adjust to that version of my wife. And some of you can relate to this because in this season, you're learning to love the unemployed version of your spouse. You're learning to love the terminally ill version of your spouse. You are learning to love the insecure version of your spouse. And again, as followers of Christ, we live with different substance here. We approach this matter with a deeper sincerity and focus and diligence. I'm going to learn to love the stranger. This isn't the person I married in Newsflash. I'm not the person she married. And so, folks, a great marriage is possible when centered on the gospel. A great marriage is possible when centered on the gospel. Amen? Amen.